Last week we began a series of four sermons starting in the 26th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew and I told you at that time that I would be simply going verse by verse from chapter 26 right on through to the end of the Gospel according to Matthew and Matthew 28 and the resurrection. And so we pick up today where we left off last Sunday with the story of the defection of Judas and Jesus being led in before Pilate. At every Passover feast, the governor was in the habit of setting free any prisoner the crowd asked for. At that time, there was a well-known prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to set free for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called the Christ? He knew very well that they had handed Jesus over to him because they were jealous. While Pilate was sitting in the judgment hall, his wife sent him a message. Have nothing to do with that innocent man, because in a dream last night, I suffered much on account of him. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask Pilate to set Barabbas free and have Jesus put to death. But the governor asked them, which one of these two do you want me to set free for you? Barabbas, they answered. What then shall I do with Jesus called the Christ? Pilate asked them. Nail him to the cross, they all answered. But Pilate asked, what crime is he committed? And then they started shouting at the top of their voices, nail him to the cross. When Pilate saw it was no use to go on but that a riot might break out, he took some water and washed his hands in the front of the crowd and he said, I am not responsible for the death of this man. This is your doing. The whole crowd answered back, let the punishment for his death fall on us and on our children. Then Pilate set Barabbas free for them and he had Jesus whipped and handed him over to be nailed to the cross. Then Pilate's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's palace. The whole company gathered around him. They stripped off his clothes and they put a scarlet robe on him. They made a crown out of thorny branches and they put it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand and they knelt before him and made fun of him. Long live the king of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the stick and hit him over the head. And when they had finished making fun of him, they took the robe off and put his own clothes back on him and then led him out to nail him to the cross. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. Us. I am reading from the American Bible Society's translation of the New Testament in today's English version. Our second lesson goes back uh, to the betrayal of Judas. 
When Judas the traitor saw that Jesus had been condemned, he repented and took back the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent, an innocent man to death, he said. What do we care about that, they answered. That's your business. Judas threw the money into the sanctuary and left them. He went off and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the money and said, this is blood money. It is against our law to put it into the temple treasury. After reaching an agreement about it, they used the money to buy Potter's Field as a cemetery for foreigners. And that's why that field is called Field of Blood to this very day. Then what the prophet Jeremiah had said came true. They took the 30, the 30 silver coins the amount the people of Israel had agreed to pay for him and used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded. On October the 17th, 1777, one of the decisive battles in the history of the world was brought to a conclusion. It is reckoned to be so decisive by historians because it led the way for the American revolutionaries to break their connection with England and to establish an independent nation and thereby to set a precedent which has been followed down through the years by many other colonies. The greatest hero of that particular battle was a man who has an unusual distinction. There is a monument in Saratoga, New York, depicting the heroic events that took place at this battle of Saratoga. And one of the inscriptions which describes the valor of this particular man. And it was very great valor indeed. He had three horses shot out from under him. He lost one arm. He was wounded twice in the leg and yet continued to fight with savage fury and inspired his men to such, and, uh, such gallantry and such valor that there was no way the British could defeat them. Well, the inscription reads that this heroic deed was done by a hero who shall be nameless. And so his name is not given. The reason his name is not given is that his name is Benedict Arnold. And he later betrayed his country and sold it for money. Judas betrayed the one who had loved him so much, took his money back, the fruit of his sin, soured and sickened by it, shouted out to the priest that he had betrayed an innocent man to his death, did an almost unthinkable thing, went into the temple and threw the money down. And then he went out to conclude his selfish life by destroying himself. 
the priests at this point got together and tried to decide what to do with this blood money. They were very scrupulous about a religious point here. They had no scruples about lying and putting an innocent man to his death. But they were very scrupulous about the use of this money, that it should not be put into the temple treasury, but rather, but rather should be used to buy a cemetery in which foreigners could be buried. And Matthew, as he has a, a way of doing, points out that this is one of those little telltale marks of prophecy in which God is teaching lessons of how every minute detail of prophecy is going to be fulfilled concerning Christ. And then we come to the lesson we are to pick up today. It was not lawful for the Jewish Sanhedrin, the elders who governed the Jews, to put Jesus to death. They had tried him for blasphemy because he said that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. But they had to get the approval of the Roman governor before he could be put to death. And so early in the morning hours they came to, Pilate, uh, to Pilate's quarters, awakened him, and asked that he come out to see them. This must have infuriated Pilate. He had a lot of difficulty with the Jews anyway. He was there for 10 years as the Roman administrator in Judea, the man who was to collect taxes for Rome, the man who was to be the senior military authority, and a man who was really conscientious in a lot of ways, but he had had great trouble in trying to rule over these rebellious people. Many incidents had occurred in the years that he had been there, he came there in 26 AD, that had caused the Jews to hate him. One of the first things had to do with the putting up of the Roman insignia, the Roman eagle and the Roman image of the emperor. Of course, this was a violation to the Orthodox Jew of the making of any graven image, and it was hideous in their sight, and they refused it. A pilot at one point decided to enforce this to the letter and sent out his soldiers amongst the delegation who called upon him to beg him to take away uh, this hated idol. At a given signal, the soldiers who had intermingled amongst the delegation all drew their swords and threatened to kill the Jews if they didn't get out of the courtyard. But to the absolute astonishment of Pilate, they said, all right, go ahead and kill us. Kill every one of us. And even Pilate couldn't kill them all. And he had to back off and remove the eagles and the insignias. That was just one incident that occurred. Pilate knew that the city needed a different water system, and so he constructed it. But he took temple funds to do it, and this, too, was offensive to the Jews. And so when the Jews came to him that morning, trying to tell him that they were solicitous about the emperor's throne, and that a pretender who was a threat to the emperor, calling himself a king, had arisen. Pilate was too shrewd to believe this for a moment. 
And then one of the most dramatic events in all of history takes place. Here we see Jesus brought into the presence of this Roman governor. I think if I could have any flashback, I would want to see this scene. Here he is brought in after having been kept up all night, interrogated and mistreated by the Sanhedrin. Tired and pale and yet regal, he is brought into the presence of this Roman governor, a man with military experience, a man with a lot of experience as a judge. And the moment Pilate laid his eyes on Jesus, he knew that this was no ordinary prisoner who had been brought into his presence. I think that Pilate must himself have felt very awkward in looking on such a face as the face of the Lord Jesus. The chief priests and the elders begin to bring their accusations against Jesus. Pilate looked at Jesus and asked him the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Well now, our Lord had to give an answer to this question to Pilate. And the translators have difficulty in translating precisely what he sought to convey. He was not the king in the sense that Pilate thought of kings. But in another sense, he was a king. He was the Messiah whom God had promised. And so the Lord Jesus says, in effect, I cannot deny what you say. But it's not the way you think it is. Well, Pilate, astonished by the honesty of this man, by the fact that he was not cowling, cowering in his presence, that he was not afraid, but that there was a poise and a style and a class about this prisoner that was different from the people who came mouthing into his presence that they had been mistreated, and the people who came lying into his presence and the people who came into his presence cursing and swearing at Rome. There was something entirely different about this Jesus of Nazareth. Pilate had surely heard about him. You don't just ride into Jerusalem with people shouting hosannas and praises and running up and down the streets without the Roman governor hearing about it. And then, too, there is Pilate's wife. You know, sometimes help comes to you when you follow Christ from the most unexpected sources. Here is a woman who is uh, a person of nobility and great rank, the first lady of Judea. What did another Galilean peasant mean to her? Another Jew, there were already too many Jews. But there was something about this Jew that was different. I wonder if Pilate's wife somewhere had heard him speak. I wonder if Pilate's wife had read some of those Old Testament prophecies saying that one day the Messiah, the Christ, would come. 
Well, at any rate, she sends word to her husband she could not, as a woman, go into the courtroom. And she does an unheard of, unprecedented thing. She sends word by a servant who goes up to the judge's sleeve and pulls it, calls him over and whispers into your ear, into his ear. The first lady has told me to tell you not to do anything to this man, that he's innocent. She's had a dream about him in the night. It can be said to her credit, however superstitious she might have been, that she acted on the only information that was available to her, and she sought to do something about it. Sometimes I have seen the cause of Christ helped by people who had a great admiration for the Lord Jesus and who were somehow fascinated by his holiness and his goodness in such a way that they were braver and more useful and helpful than many of the pious who were always talking about him but never really doing anything for him. And so Pilate's wife sent help from an unexpected quarter. Now Pilate is in a real dilemma. What is he going to do with him? Deep down inside of his soul, he knows that this man is innocent. And there is a key line here, and the King James Version says that he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Any politician knows how envy operates. He counts on it in an election. I had one of the men who is very famous that you would know if I called his name. He told me one time that some of the best help he ever got in any campaign came from people who didn't like him, but who hated the man that he was running against. And they would say to him, I'll do anything to get him. I've been waiting for this opportunity. I'll even help you. And Pilate was a politician. And he knew that it was for envy that they had done this thing. This ought to be a great warning to us. Envy has always been ranked as one of the seven deadly sins. And we need to be careful, very, very careful, that when we are holding the scales, the balance in which there is justice, that we do not shape them in favor of self. Well, Pilate, knowing the envy of the Jews and their hostility, knowing that they were lying when they began to talk about this man being a, a threat to Caesar, Pilate wanted to let him go. In fact, Pilate was amazed that Jesus didn't answer the calumnies that were brought against him. So Pilate said to him, don't you hear all these things they accuse you of? But Jesus refused to answer a single word so that the governor was greatly surprised. Anytime you're insulted and maligned and abused and talked about, and you remain silent, a great many people will be greatly surprised. And it's a tremendous test of your spirituality. 
This is not to say that there are not times and places where things may be set straight. But Jesus will not even stoop to answer the calumnies that are flung at him. There is a dignity that is here. A dignity that is beyond this world and so different from the way this world operates that even Pilate, a hard-nosed Roman government official, was amazed and touched by it. Pilate began to think of some way, some way that he could escape. That is, he, Pilate. What could he do? Someone happened to mention Herod and Galilee. And then Pilate inquired a little more and found out that Jesus was from Galilee. That was another district. And Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod, hoping that Herod would judge him and that he could escape from making a judgment about it. Herod is that same Herod who had a little sex pot who danced in front of him and for whom he swore half of his kingdom. And he had John the Baptist killed. And it is significant that when Jesus was led into Herod's presence, that he never said a mumbling word. Jesus never said one syllable in the presence of Herod. The judgment of God is when God grows silent. There are people who no longer are sensitive to spiritual matters. And they think it is because they have won out. But the judgment of God was never heavier than at that time. God judges by taking away his voice and his word. And when he takes it away, he grows silent. And his judgment falls. Herod wanted to see Jesus perform some magic trick. He wanted to see Jesus do some miracle. But Jesus never said a word to this reprobate. And so... Herod let his soldiers make fun of Jesus for a little bit, and then they brought him back to Pilate again. Pilate could not evade his responsibility. In another interview that John tells us about, in this second interview that Pilate has with Jesus, he is still fascinated with this unusual prisoner, that he doesn't try to defend himself, and so at one point he says to the Lord Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to put you to death or the power to set you free? Rome has given me this godlike power that all I've got to do is sign the decree and you're a dead man. All I've got to do is sign the decree and you can go free. Pilate said he had that power, but in actuality he didn't have that power. Subtle forces had been at work in his life for a long, long time. Compromises had been made. And deep down in his soul he was a victim of his own transgressions, and he was incapable of exercising the power which he had in the right way. 
Politics is the art of the possible. Politics is the art of compromise. And Pilate would really love to have set Jesus free, but Pilate was going to look out for Pilate, first, last, and forever. If he could let Jesus go free and still keep his high position and lose nothing of his reputation, then that's so much the better. But if he couldn't, he knew what the decision would be. How many of us imitate Pilate in this way? You ever walk through the woods sometimes and put your foot up on a log and think that it'll hold you up and when you step on it, it falls all the way through? It's rotten. The snows of the winter and the rain and the steamy heat in the summer have all been at work rotting out the core of the sinner. And one day when some pressure is applied, it, it breaks down. Well, that's the way it is with moral compromises. Go ahead and compromise your integrity. Compromise your, your purity. Keep on going in these evil ways. And one day all your friends and neighbors will be shocked by what's happened. They'll say, I never dreamed he was that kind of person. Who would have ever dreamed that she would have done such a thing as that? But subtle forces had been at work a long time. And so Pilate, Pilate calls for a bowl of water. And in a theatrical display, he takes the bowl of water and washes his hands, takes a towel from the servant and dries them, and shouts out to the Jews down below on the street, I am innocent from the blood of this just man. You're going to take him out and nail him to a cross in a living death. And I know he's innocent. But I'm washing my hands of the whole thing. There are people who try to do this today. They don't really have anything against Jesus. If he leaves me alone, I'll leave him alone. But you'll make a decision. It is utterly inevitable. And one of the things which we face today is the fact of apathy and indifference to the claims of Christ and listening to the noise that the multitude makes, having our ideas shaped by those who are shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, take him and nail him to a cross, let Barabbas go free. And you get caught in the crowd and you find yourself thinking the way the crowd thinks. In reading through these accounts this week, I kept wondering, where were all of those people that he healed? Where were all of those people who ate that he fed? Where were all of those people who had heard him preach when the crowd was shouting out, crucify him, crucify him? Where were they? Where were they? Every time you are brought into the presence of the Lord Jesus, you have to make a decision about him. And that decision can often be made through this 
escape. We think it's an escape, but it's not an escape of apathy. Stoddard Kennedy wrote a famous poem. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails in his hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep, for those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to America, they simply passed him by. They never heard a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the wintry rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see that Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. The crowds screamed, crucified. What are Christians going to do? Are we going to be caught in the crowd and listen to what they say and join up with the crowd? Let me tell you, we are being secularized in America at an alarming proportion. That third parent of our children, the television set, is giving us another standard of morals and another standard of conduct and screaming constantly to us about all the things that we have to have. And the precious little 30 minutes that our children may have on Sunday morning and Sunday school, and the precious 30 minutes that they may have in church to have some impressions from Christ left upon them, is having fight against it hours and hours and hours and hours of influences that are contrary to Christ very often. And our theologians, what do they do? They're going to package Jesus so that he'll be acceptable to modern man. They'll pare away his deity, deny his virgin birth, claim that he never rose from the dead. They'll put him on a throne with Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad. They'll tell you not to get too religious. Don't take Jesus too seriously. But he will share no throne. He sits on a solitary throne. Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? This is, to me, the greatest question in the whole Bible and the greatest question in life. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Will I look at him with apathy and indifference? Will I reject him and see him nailed to a cross? Will I try to evade the issue? Well, I can't. When I go out of the church today, I make another decision about him. And he meets me every day. He met me one day last week when I wanted to write a mean letter to someone that I felt like had done me wrong. I tore it up three times. You know why? I read what Jesus said in here when they accused him. 
He didn't say anything. He meets me in so many ways. What shall I do with Jesus? This was Pilate's dilemma. What shall I do with him? Another question comes back. Pilate, what's Jesus going to do with you? What will he do with you one day? This is the inevitable question. What will I do with him? You know, the gospel has nothing to do with time. There are people who think this is all very much out of date. They'll be greatly surprised. We're just heading as fast as we can go to a collision course with God. Every day brings you one day nearer to it. I saw a woman this week who was terribly sick. And when I came into her room, she said, nothing has ever brought me to my knees like the suffering that I'm going through. She doesn't think she'll make it. When I read the Bible to her, and she's a brilliant, able woman, I suppose 50 or 55 years old, she said, read it more slowly. Read it more slowly. One day we'll be face to face with Jesus. And the answer to that question will have been given. What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Whether or not we really took him as Lord. Or whether we were just another church member. Or whether or not we said I'm not going to take this stuff too seriously. All of that will come out then. In Edinburgh once I saw a play by Chekhov, the great Russian writer. And it led me to be interested in this Russian. And in my reading about him, I read him one of the most fascinating things I ever saw. It had to do with the gospel and with time. Chekhov told of how on one occasion a Russian Orthodox priest was going through the Siberi uh, Siberian storm heavy snowstorm, and he sought shelter in the first place that he could come to to get out of the cold. It was a peasant's cottage. He beat on the door. This priest did, and the peasants came and opened the door, and there were only two women there, a, a mother and her daughter, and both of them were widows, and they were startled by this priest with his, his cassock and with his beard and the big cross, and they were afraid of him. They were very poor people. But they invited him in and he came in and, and there was a stove there and he warmed himself by the stove. And he could see that they were nervous. And to set them at their ease, he began to tell them how once Peter, the apostle, had warmed himself by a fire. And how he had denied his Lord three times. And how the cock crew and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And then as he looked at their faces, he saw that their countenances grew troubled and big tears filled up in their eyes and began to drop off their faces. And it wasn't because he was telling the story in a dramatic way. And this old priest said that when he got outside and started on his journey again and began to recall what took place when he was talking to these women, that something dawned on him that he had never learned in the theological school. 
He said that he realized that there was an unbroken chain that went all the way back 2,000 years to the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. And that chain extended all the way to a cottage in a Siberian snowstorm. And that these people were moved by what had happened to Peter just as much as any of those who knew Peter might have been moved. They were moved as though he had been a neighbor or a friend of theirs. And then Chekhov says that this taught him that the gospel has nothing to do with time. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that unbroken chain goes back back to Pilate's quarters in Jerusalem, back to a balcony where he shouts out to the people, and from the people there all the way to Montreat, North Carolina, and Little Gaither Chapel, and the people who may be listening. And he says, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And God will hold us responsible for the answer that we give to that question. What have you done with Jesus? That's what he'll say one day when you come face to face with him. What did you do with my son? We have had much more opportunity than Pilate. We've got tradition. We've got Christian friends. We have hymns and churches. What will we do? with Jesus, who is called the Christ. May God grant that the answer to this greatest question of the Bible and of the life may be that he shall be Lord and Savior truly of our lives. Let us stand in prayer. Forgive us, O God, our Father, that we so much play and act and pretend when it comes to our faith in thee and in thy Son. Grant that the Holy Spirit may so haunt us that our lives shall be lived out with the knowledge that the eyes of Jesus see all that we do and the ears of Jesus hear all that we say so that we might live for him. Help us to love him more and serve him better. And Father, if there are present those who have never yet said yes forever to Jesus, wilt thou haunt that person from this hour forward until that one shall simply kneel and let Christ be Lord of his or her life. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.